0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Joel Street. I oversee the teams that produce Mayo Clinic Radio, the Mayo Clinic Q&A podcast, and all the great content seen on the Mayo Clinic News Network. The COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic has affected us all, and for the time being, we'll change the sound of our program just a bit. In an effort to deliver the information that you and your family need to know, the first half of our program will be focused on COVID-19. This could be in the interview format that you're used to hearing or highlights for Mayo Clinic QA podcasts or Mayo Clinic News Network coverage of the pandemic. Thanks for joining us and let's get started. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
2: Welcome to Mayo Clinic QA. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. Another week begins in the COVID 19 pandemic. It's time to take a look at where we are where we've been, and where we're headed to into the future against the fight and spread of coronavirus. With us to discuss the latest information is Mayo Clinic infectious disease and vaccine expert, Dr. Greg Poland. Dr. Poland, thanks again for joining us. Good morning. It's been a busy week since we last uh, discussed uh, the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, Anything new that's come out on the horizon that you'd like to share with us?
3: There's uh, actually been a number of interesting developments that have occurred. Uh, Some you may have heard about, And that is uh, major medical centers that have had a lot of cases noticing a very unusual phenomena, and that is large vessel occlusion, strokes basically, occurring in people as young as their 30s. In fact, the research letters comment that while they're trying to fish these blood clots out, new ones are literally forming in front of them. So this this adds to our understanding of the pathophysiology of this, this disease in that we're broadening it to new symptoms, CDC added six more to their list, and also an understanding that this disease can cause both arterial and venous side blood clots, and that's that's a little unusual. I think the other thing is uh, two trials that were initiated based on noticing quite a bit of difference between the severity of disease in men versus women, and we've talked some about that. So at one of the major medical centers in New York City, they're going to actually start a trial where they will give men who have more severe disease an estradiol patch, in other words, dose them with estrogen, and a separate study at Cedar sinai in LA, where they're going to give men with serious disease two progesterone shots a day. Um, it's sort of a moonshot idea of could we duplicate what we think is happening in women or, re- or responsible for the difference in severity and see if it helps.
2: And you've also educated us in the past about antivirals and their role in potentially treating this. Any new uh, developments on that aspect?
3: Not, not really, um, other than letters that have come out showing an increased risk of cardiac arrhythmias, that is abnormalities in the heartbeat as a result of taking hydroxychloroquine. It doesn't appear at least, and these are very early studies, to give any major advantage, whereas remdesivir has a few bright spots. But I think we're still fundamentally in this stage of saying we've got to slow down and be patient for science in order to do high quality clinical trials that will inform us and inform us well as to whether they help, harm, or have no effect. The other part of that is we're learning that we can't do those trials when somebody's already on a ventilator, for example, already very ill. We're gonna have to move those trials back and do them earlier in the course of the disease in order to understand their possible benefit.
2: I remember previously you had mentioned about how the coronavirus lives in the system. And we're we're learning that, in fact, it can stay in the air for about three hours. Can you, can you comment a little bit about that?
3: Yeah, Sam, that's a, that's a very good point. And a number of models, uh, and as well as a study released over the weekend showing that they could identify coronavirus on pollution particulates, which again would help it to stay in the air. So it, it really depends on things like the amount of sunlight or UV light that it's exposed to, prevailing air currents temperature and humidity but all the models are basically showing the same thing Uh, when somebody speaks or coughs or sneezes it's really a very complex cloud of particles some large some small and aerosolized some in between and again depending on those parameters I just mentioned uh, three hours and longer the virus can linger in the air, can settle onto the floor. There are studies now showing that uh, in hospital pharmacies where no hosp- where no patients went, just physicians, that they could recover virus off the floor. And the reason for it is it's on the shoes of the healthcare workers. So uh, we're learning a lot about this. We're learning a lot about how a virus like this spreads, particularly in these air transmission models. There's one showing that you know, if you're, if you're behind somebody who's, for example, jogging, you probably need about 30 feet distance to not be exposed to that virus. So uh, that's a considerable change in our understanding.
2: So we've heard a lot about the importance of testing and especially doing this on a, a larger scale. Mm. Uh, what, are you, uh, what have you recently heard about widespread testing?
3: They've done some widespread testing in New York and they've seen some really interesting data there in the state of New York, they have found about 14% of people to have antibodies. When they get to outstate or more rural New York, about 3.6. But in New York City, 21% of the people that they tested were were positive. There have been some large studies that were just commented on this morning. Four states, Arkansas, North Carolina, Ohio, and Virginia, have collectively tested almost 3,300 uh, men and women that are in prisons, and remarkably, 96% of those that were positive had no symptoms at all. So we're we're really seeing in different locations very different senses of how how much community transmission there has been, and this idea we've talked about that the serious cases we see are the tip of the iceberg. There's a much bigger portion under the water, so to speak, where I think we're gonna find that many people have been infected, had no idea they were infected because they had mild symptoms or symptoms that weren't reminiscent of what they were hearing about in the news
2: as severe disease. One of the beauties of science is that we're always learning. Mm. And we, were, we used to be told that once you have antibodies to coronavirus, that protected you, gave you immunity. But we're beginning to learn that, in fact, that may not be quite the case. Uh, can you explain a little bit about
3: that? Yeah, Sanjay, you've you, you put your finger on what I think is going to turn that, that in testing, what I think are going to turn out to be the biggest issues in dealing with this. Coronavirus antibodies are different than what we are familiar with, uh, with other infectious diseases. These antibodies tend to not protect well against disease. They tend not to have longevity associated with them. So the problem with antibody testing at this point is we do not know whether any level of antibody would protect you, and if so, for how long. So we've we've talked a little bit in the past about this idea that some states and businesses want to issue so-called immunity passports, but that doesn't really make any sense until we know what level of antibody is protective, And again, for how long are you protected? The seasonal coronaviruses, for example, uh, that that antibody tends to last a few months to a couple of years. With SARS, uh, after about three years, antibody was lost. So we don't know yet, and we're pinning a lot of hopes on this. So this is a major area of inquiry.
2: Uh, we've been talking to our Mayo Clinic COVID-19 expert, Dr. Greg Poland. As always, Greg, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and wisdom My with pleasure. us.
3: My pleasure. Be safe.
1: Mayo Clinic Radio will return right after this. Stay with us.
2: Welcome to Mayo Clinic Q&A. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. It's being called the Quarantine 15 online people poking fun at gaining weight while staying at home during the COVID-19 pandemic. Is it really a problem, or is eating helping us deal with our stress? And what about for our kids? Public health researchers warn that COVID-19-related school closures will double out-of-school time this year, raising concerns about weight gain associated with summer recess for our children. With us to discuss this is the Director of Mayo Clinic Healthy Living Program, Dr. Donald Henrood. Dr. Henrood, welcome to the program.
4: Thank you. Happy to be here, Sanj.
2: I alluded to it a little bit in the introduction about this quarantine 15 online. Can you explain what that is for a lot of people who may not be familiar with that?
4: Well, we don't have any data yet. It's too early to tell. But obviously, people's habits have changed quite a bit. Now, I want to make a point for some people, getting enough food, getting enough calories and maintaining weight may be an issue. So some people may have to worry about uh, maintaining their weight, not unintentionally losing weight. But for many of us, our habits have changed. For example, people think about exercise right away, and they should. Fitness centers are closed. People may be doing less exercise and burning less, activities, uh, less calories through activity that way. What people don't think quite as much about, though, is low-level activity throughout the day. Even if we have a desk job, we have to walk at least to our car to get to work. We may walk throughout the day. We may walk to lunch. And so if we're spending time at home... That low-level activity may be causing us to burn less overall calories. On the flip side, we may be consuming more calories. On the good side, we, if we're eating out less at restaurants, sometimes that can be high calorie. We may still be taking a, a takeout at home. So there might be a little bit of a good thing there in decreasing calories. However, many people are stocking up. Uh, just like toilet paper, I've seen people at the, at the store loading up with foods that will last a long time, Frozen foods, processed foods that have a long shelf life, many times they're higher in calories and less healthy. On the flip side, for example, fruits and vegetables, they don't last as long and we may be consuming less than that. So there are a number of reasons why we might be at risk for weight gain through our habits that have changed both in burning activity and in consuming more calories.
2: And what about snacking? Have you noticed people are now a little bit more bored at home and they're snacking more often, for example?
4: It could be. Obviously, this is anecdote, but if people are at home, they're around food more often. Uh, We tend to eat out of stress. That might be an additional factor. So there are a number of factors, availability, types of food, amount of food, uh, and the stress we're undergoing that may contribute to increased calorie intake and weight gain.
2: So obviously, we all like our food. Um, you're, You're very active. You're very healthy. Tell us what you've been doing to stay in shape.
4: For many people, this is a big change in their routine, as we've talked about. I have an old bicycle that I have on a trainer in my basement, and so that's helped me stay active. Families try to go for walks to get that low-level activity. An important factor is that the more we deviate from our usual routine and the longer it goes on,
2: the more this is going to influence our weight. So you mentioned those family walks that that you go on, and a lot of people I see are walking in the neighborhood, and they're walking for a long period of time, maybe more than they usually do does that substitute for the, for example, of 20 to 30 minute aerobic workouts that people are doing?
4: As we've said for a long time, any activity is good activity. Exercise is the most efficient way to burn calories. You can burn more per unit time, but that low level activity is important. So establishing that and maintaining that. One example of how important this is, if you think about New York City, for example. We've known for some time that people who live in urban areas and in large cities tend to weigh less than people who live in rural areas because they're walking a lot. Look at the snapshot of New York City sidewalks or other big cities. They used to be crowded with people walking and burning off calories, and now they're virtually deserted.
2: So as you said, we'll, we'll try our best to uh, maintain our weight, but sometimes we, we might slip and we might gain 5, 10, 15 pounds. Why why is that a concern for for not only adults, but also children who are at home now and not at school? It's
4: been shown that children's weight tracks to some extent. So if children establish those habits or lack of healthy habits when they're young and they gain weight, that might persist as they go into adolescence and adulthood. Similarly, with adults, uh, as we maintain those habits, if we can establish a new routine, the longer this goes on, then we can arrest that weight gain and try and maintain a normal weight. It's more important for some people than others. For example, people who have diabetes, or high blood pressure, just a modest amount of weight gain in some people, if they're sensitive to that, can increase their blood glucose and blood pressure, uh, and they won't have as well as good a control over these factors, over these conditions. So it depends on the individual, it depends on their health conditions, and it depends on long-term habits and routines.
2: So as you mentioned, the the chronic health issues that kind of develop from increased weight gain, especially from childhood going into adulthood, how big a problem is childhood obesity?
4: We've known for quite some time that weight is increasing in virtually every subsegment of society, adults, children, men, women. Uh, It's been actually reported that African-American men are the ones who are gaining the least weight, but overall, everybody is gaining weight. As we go on, Uh, as children establish uh, their adult weights. It's been said that the children these days may be the first generation who lives less long compared to their parents and Mm. grandparents. So it's having a huge impact. We know that weight influences diabetes, high blood pressure, abnormal blood cholesterol values, heart disease, many cancers. So it does have a strong impact on our health. It's hard to predict who is going to be affected by that, So we all need to maintain healthy habits and and try and maintain not only a good weight, but healthy lifestyle habits in diet and physical activity.
2: You've talked very eloquently about the role of physical activity. Can we just talk a little bit about the diet? You know, Now people are at home, for example, uh, they're doing more things like baking, making cakes than they may not have done beforehand. Can you talk to us about some of the healthy dietary habits we should be adhering to during this uh, uh, pandemic.
4: So everybody is getting accustomed to this new normal. And again, I'd encourage people to establish those new healthy habits now. And don't let it happen to you. You have to be a little proactive about this. And that'll make it easier in the long term. So break out of your comfort zone instead of giving in to large amounts of comfort food. This can be an opportunity. Bean burritos or even pizza, uh, if you make it in the correct way, can be a healthy food. So invest some time planning is a real key here. If you plan ahead rather than just grabbing something at the last moment, raise your culinary skills and do a little bit more cooking. Uh, it's an opportunity for that too. So if we can in, embrace this, embrace our new normal, look for opportunities to establish new healthy routines. Eating healthy and eating well, don't have it doesn't have to be drudgery. It can and should be an enjoyable way to live. And if we can do that then we can better manage our weight and our overall health during this pandemic.
2: So Dr. Hensrud, you talked about enjoying one life and sometimes going along with that is, is alcohol and drinking alcohol. Can you talk to us a little bit about how alcohol consumption can also in an excess lead to weight gain?
4: Well, we all know that alcohol contains calories and there is some initial data that alcohol sales throughout the country have increased. That's understandable. People aren't Uh, in their normal routine, they're home more, they're relaxing more in the evening. It is an enjoyable habit. However, habits can sneak up and bite you in various ways. It's possible. Some people may uncover a predisposition to abuse. But for many of us, it's just the extra calories that alcohol adds. Set a routine, try and stick to it, enjoy things, but uh, try and avoid the excesses of excess calories in general and too much alcohol
2: that can come back and and, uh, influence our health in a negative way. Don, any, anything else we need to add that we haven't discussed?
4: We've talked about a lot of things, and I think it gets down to the basics, like many things. Establishing new habits takes a little effort, a little planning, but it doesn't have to be drudgery. Making new habits, just like in the past, if we do that, if we come up with things that are practical and enjoyable, then they're likely to be sustainable and can help us manage this pandemic we're all in, and try and maintain our health and our enjoyment of life.
2: We've been discussing weight gain during the pandemic with the director of Mayo Clinic Healthy Living Program, Dr. Donald Hensford. Again, Don, thanks for joining us. Have
1: a Mayo Clinic Radio will return right after this. Stay with us.
0: Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Frequent hand washing is one of the best ways to avoid getting sick and spreading illness. As you touch people, services and objects throughout the day, you accumulate germs on your hands. You can infect yourself with these germs by touching your eyes, nose or mouth or spread them to others. Although it's important to keep your hands germ-free, it's impossible to keep them completely germ-free, but washing your hands frequently can help limit the transfer of bacteria, viruses, and other microbes. Always wash your hands before preparing food or eating, treating wounds or caring for a sick person, inserting or removing contact lenses, and always wash your hands after you prepare food. You use the toilet or change a diaper, you touch an animal, animal feed or animal waste, you blow your Nose, cough, or sneeze, or you treat wounds or care for a sick person, and definitely wash them after handling garbage. Also, wash your hands when they are visibly dirty. It's generally best to wash your hands with soap and water. Over-the-counter antibacterial soaps are no more effective at killing germs than is regular soap. Now, when you wash, use clean running water, either warm or cold. Apply the soap and lather up well, rubbing hands for about 20 seconds, getting in between fingers and under nails, and then rinse and dry. Alcohol-based sanitizers, which don't require water, are an acceptable alternative when soap and water aren't available. If you use a hand sanitizer, make sure the product contains at least 60% alcohol. Hand washing is a simple effective way to help you stay healthy. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams.
5: Tracy, how many times have we heard in the past few years that exercise is good for your health?
0: A long time.
6: Yep. And
5: it is. <laughs> Almost
6: forever. <laughs> it's all it's good for you in many ways including lowering your risk of heart disease. What's an expert's opinion, you might ask? Well, joining us in studio is the co-director of the Sports Cardiology Clinic at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Todd Miller. He's also my hero. He's a longtime runner and has completed over 20 marathons.
5: Dr. Miller, good to have you on the program. Tell us about this Sports Cardiology Clinic.
7: Mayo has a long tradition of teaching people about exercise, and the way that has generally evolved is people who generally have been sedentary are encouraged to exercise, and that's part of the executive health program, but it also applies to people who might have new onset coronary artery disease. If you've had a heart attack, you're placed in a cardiac rehab program. And that's been a supervised exercise approach that applies to people who generally have been sedentary. The sports cardiology clinic that we uh, have been performing for the past half dozen years relates to people who consider themselves athletes. So it's more than just the recreational exerciser. It's somebody who's entering competitive events. And we generally break this up into two camps. There's the pediatric sports cardiology clinic, which mainly applies to high school and collegiate age athletes. Much of what goes on there is screening people for underlying heart problems. It's become a big uh, issue. And in the older adult athlete, it applies to people who might be entering a 5K or a 10K and they would like to continue participating but they have some concern about their heart or they've actually been diagnosed with heart disease and they're wondering can i continue these activities
5: so you said that you're trying to screen them for an underlying cardiac
7: problem so that they wouldn't get into trouble when they did compete that's correct and, most, and how do you do that well most of the screening goes on in the younger athletes so if you look at it backwards each year in the united states there's about 80 cardiac events on the athletic field or shortly thereafter that occur in these younger athletes and when you look at what cardiac conditions are causing those deaths they can be identified as a few underlying abnormalities something called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy it's an over over development of the heart muscle it's a heart muscle that's excessively thick or some of these people are prone to certain arrhythmias of the heart because they have congenital conditions called long QT syndrome or some uh, individuals have an artery that the coronary artery, instead of taking the usual path, takes an abnormal pathway that can also be associated with sudden death in young people. So you can screen for these conditions. The trouble is our screening tests are not very good for applying them to large populations, at least the cheap tests. And if you want to apply the more accurate tests, it becomes a very expensive proposition.
5: I read recently that there's evidence that extreme athletes, marathoners, uh, iron men, et cetera, might be increasing their risk for developing an arrhythmia called atrial fibrillation and possibly even coronary
7: artery disease, true? That's correct. There's been a lot of concern about that. So the way these studies are usually done, they identify a big population, a community population, and they look at the prevalence of coronary artery disease or atrial fibrillation, and then within that population, they can identify a handful of extreme athletes or maybe 100 athletes out of several thousand people. And what they'll do then is take the athletes and match them to other members of the population by age and gender who are not extreme athletes. And they look at the prevalence of these conditions, atrial fibrillation or coronary artery disease. And in these cross-sectional studies that are performed that way, the prevalence of atrial fibrillation has been about five times higher than in similar sedentary people. Why? Oh, there's a lot of uh, plausible mechanisms for that. When you exercise, you develop what's called athletic heart syndrome. So your heart chambers get bigger Hmm. and the atrial fibrillation arises from the upper chambers of the heart, the atria. So they will also enlarge as part of the athletic training. And as you stretch heart muscle, it makes it more arrhythmia prone. So that's one of the more common mechanisms as to why this is felt to be more uh, common in the athletes.
5: Have you ever uh, studied whether or not marathoners or those who uh, have done high-intensity exercise live longer or don't
7: live as long as the general population? Um, It's hard to tease out that data, but um, there are studies that have looked at it, and probably the best study was done in France, and they looked at uh, cyclists who had been in the Tour de France, Mm -hmm. and they found that Again, compared to age match controls and all that who are sedentary, the cyclists were living longer than the people who weren't physically active.
6: Well, let's talk about the average people. <laughs> and you, you used the word athlete in the beginning, and it seems to me that a lot of people get confused about the word athlete. I'd love to know what a cardiologist's definition of what an athlete means.
7: We consider someone an athlete who's entering formal organized events. And for the adult crowd, it's mainly distance running or triathletes. There are some other sports, but that's most of it. In the upper Midwest here, we also see some cross-country skiers, et cetera. So that's how we define an athlete. Part of the reason why this has become such a prominent issue is if you look at entrance, so some of these are repeat people, but if you look at entrance into distant events of 5K or longer each year, it's 20 million in the United States right now. So as the population's aging, more and more people seem to be doing this type of thing and then these cardiac issues arise. So for the most of us, if we
5: wanna do a good for our heart and, and we wanna be heart healthy, how much
7: exercise do we need? What should we do? Right, so the emphasis these days has been on not just exercise but physical activity. So exercise falls under the larger umbrella of physical activity. The reason why there's such an emphasis on physical activity is we're in the middle of this obesity epidemic. Forty percent of the country is now medically obese. Um, And the new physical activity guidelines for Americans, the second edition of these, were just released in 2018. And they put a strong emphasis on just being active at any point in time. So the old version of the guidelines said, oh, you need to do 10 minutes of some type of exercise type of activity at least at a particular time. The new version says, forget all that. Just get around and move more. So it's the old take the stairs instead of the elevator. Absolutely. And uh, But is it still true that 30 minutes
5: of uh, vigorous exercise most days of the week is, is recommended?
7: Yes. Yeah, so these activity guidelines emphasis, emphasize this activity that we would usually not think of as exercise, just be more active with daily life. That's called NEAT, non-exercise activity thermogenesis. That's the new buzzword. But in addition to that, Dr. Shives, you also wanna do half an hour, five days a week of endurance or aerobic exercise, like brisk walking, jogging. And in addition to that, you should be doing a couple of days a week of strength training to improve your overall muscle tone, which in older people in particular has been shown to help reduce the risk of falls etc. Is vigorous exercise meaning you're breathing heavy? Vigorous exercise means you're breathing heavy. Um, so as you don't need a formal exercise test to check this out. You can basically do that by using the simple breath test. So when you're out exercising with somebody, you should be doing enough exercise so that you're starting to feel mildly dysmic or short mildly of short of breath. Yep. You might even break out into a little bit of a sweat, but you should still be able to carry on a conversation of full sentences. All right, no question about it. Exercise is good for you,
5: and it's especially good for your heart. It's that simple.
6: Our thanks to Mayo Clinic Heart Specialist and the co-director of the Sports Cardiology Clinic, Dr. Todd Miller. Thanks again, Dr. Miller. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn about the latest in treatment for headaches.
7: You're listening
5: to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
1: Download the Mayo Clinic Q&A podcast today for the latest complete versions of interviews you hear on Mayo Clinic Radio. Find Mayo Clinic Q&A podcasts on your favorite podcast providers.
5: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
6: And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy,
5: as you know, headaches are really common. In fact, in the United States, over 15% of adults complain of a severe headache or a migraine. And in fact, migraines affect some 40 million people in the United States.
6: Headaches are twice as common among women than among men. And interestingly, headaches are more common in younger people than those age 65 and older. Here to talk about headaches including the latest treatments is Mayo Clinic neurologist Dr. Beth Robertson, welcome to the
8: program. Thank you for inviting me.
5: (laughs) So uh, let me ask you about your job. Do you spend all day every day seeing people who have headaches?
8: I do, I do. So I have a background in both nerve and headaches but I'm interested only in the nerves above the neck. So all day every day those are my patients.
5: And are most of these people have do they have migraines? or what the kind strong of majority
8: of our patients do have migraines, often very severe migraines that have been hard to treat with their local physicians. So they've had. Years of, of difficult to treat headaches before we see them.
5: You know, before we talk about migraines, tell us about the headaches that most of us get from time to time, the ordinary headache. Do you call them tension headaches? Why do we get
8: common those? Headaches. Right. Not common headaches. common <laughs> right. yeah. So I think, yeah, so what most people refer to when they're talking about that ordinary or normal headache would be a tension headache. That's more of a, a mild, dull, pressure type sensation on both sides of the head, sometimes triggered by stress, sometimes not sleeping enough the night before. And um, those are often treated with over-the-counter medicines. Which one's best? So most patients prefer NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medicines like ibuprofen or Aleve. But in the over-the-counter pain medicine might be helpful. Acetaminophen's
5: okay, too, whichever, whatever
6: works.
8: That's right, and most of the time, people are able to function with those, they take the medicine, they go about their day, and I never see them in clinic.
6: When my kids complain about headaches, or even for myself, I just say, drink some water and that seems to help, maybe it's just gonna, gives you a little bit of time. Does, do people get headaches because they don't drink enough water?
8: So dehydration can be a trigger for headaches, often a trigger for migraine headaches, and my son who struggles with migraine, I also tell him to drink some water as a first line, but um, it's less common to trigger the tension type headache.
5: I was surprised to learn that there are 40 million Americans. No wonder you're so busy. we well, yeah. lucky we got you in the studio. 40 million Americans who have migraines, and it's 18% of women and 6% of men. Much more common in women. Any reason for that?
8: So I, I, I want to say, too, for those almost 40 million patients, there's only about 500 headache specialists. So we are quite busy. Mm. But um, as far as why women, so... The brain doesn't like change, and migraine brains are particularly vulnerable to changes in sleep, changes in stress, and changes in hormones. So women have those cyclic changes in estrogen around their ovulation and menstrual cycles and then around pregnancies, and as they get close to to menopause, there's this roller coaster over their lives, and that tends to contribute to triggering the headache. What can you do to fix or to help people who suffer from migraines? So there are a number of treatment options and we would divide treatments into acute treatments. So a treatment that you would take at the onset of the headache and then a treatment that they might take every day to reduce the frequency or the severity of the headaches. Those are preventative medicines.
5: And you've got some new in both categories, right?
8: We do. Yeah, it's a very exciting time for migraine. It's nice to be a headache practitioner these days because we have so many new options. Our classic options for the acute treatments have been, as I mentioned, sort of over-the-counter and then non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, and then we've had triptans for many years now that we would use for patients. But more recently, we've had some newer classes. So we have something called a G-Pant. We G-Pant. Ha- this just came out, Japan is the first one that's been FDA approved that came out over the holidays. And that is focused on a different pathway. So instead of our, our classic migraine paths that we're trying to address, now we're focused on something called the CGRP, or calcitonin gene-related peptide molecule.
5: Yeah, so, try to remember that, <laughs> Right, yeah.
8: right, I know, it's a, <laughs> it's a long word. But CGRP, we've known for decades, has been involved in migraine. So we know that during a migraine, CGRP goes up, When you treat the migraine, CGRP comes down, and if you inject CGRP, it will cause a migraine. So we've wanted to figure out how to disrupt that CGRP pathway for quite some time. And the preventatives that we can talk about in a little bit, if you'd like, have been focused on that pathway, but in our acute medicines, this ubrogepant has been designed to block the receptor for CGRP. And it seems like this is able to bring down the headaches in a way similar to the tryptans that we've been using for headache in the past, but maybe better tolerated, and maybe a little safer for some of our patients. So, our triptans were an issue for anybody with a heart attack or stroke because they constrict blood vessels. And this new class, this GPANT class, does not constrict blood vessels.
5: All right. And the exciting thing also is those uh, three new drugs approved in 2018 to prevent migraines. Three different ones. Uh, do they work?
8: Yes. You said that (laughs) a in every hesitantly. You know, because no drug works in every patient. Mm -hmm. But, yes, these are also trying to address that same CGRP pathway. So there are three what we call monoclonal antibodies that are out. So these are antibodies that are targeting, in two of the cases, they're targeting the CGRP protein, and one of them is targeting, again, the receptor, trying to interfere with that pain signal that we think is going on during migraine. And then there's another one that should come out later this year. And so these have been given in a monthly injection form. There's also a potential for an every three month injection form. If people are taking them over time, about half of patients will have a 50% reduction in their headaches. So that's pretty good. It's pretty good, it's pretty okay. good. If yeah. someone has migraines,
6: they get they find something that works, then does that efficacy wear away and they have to then move on to something else? Or if you find something that works, are you set?
8: Both can happen. Some patients do find that magic drug, maybe one that we've already been using for many years, and they do well for years. And then other patients may find that the effectiveness wears off over time, and they require something else. And I don't want to mislead, you know, these CGRP medicines are very glamorous, but we do have a lot of other weapons in our arsenal as well that can also help such as? There's another new one that I really feel obligated to mention that's in the acute medicines uh, category called lasmididine. It's a cousin of the tryptians but also does not constrict blood vessels. So again, it's about finding something that's safer for these patients that have really been untreated for a migraine population. And then we also use Botox injections quite regularly as a preventative with good success.
5: Counseling, uh, also part of uh, the treatment for patients with migraine
8: many of our patients do have associated anxiety and depression and maybe they started anxious and depressed or maybe just Being in pain all day, every day, which many of our patients are, has led to anxiety and depression. And the problem is that that feeds back and that can worsen headache over time. So sometimes patients do require additional help addressing that, either with additional medicines for depression or with cognitive behavioral therapy, um, sometimes stress-relieving activities, exercise, meditation, yoga, things to help address that. Does
5: acupuncture ever work?
8: Ever, yes, absolutely, no question. Sometimes? Always, no. We just have one more question,
5: the hangover headache. (laughs) What do you recommend?
8: Well, I don't see those a lot in clinic, but um, you know, hangovers are uh, multifactorial. So you have the alcohol toxins floating around, actually triggering headache. And then you have the associated dehydration that needs to be addressed separately. Drink some water. That's right. Okay. Water. Before- <laughs> and then, um, you know, alcohol interferes with the quality of sleep, the sleep architecture. So sleep deprivation can sometimes worsen the headache. So obviously, you sleep. Keep it off, drink water, or maybe avoid the alcohol entirely. Time I machine. Sure knew that was <laughs> right. going to be
5: the answer. Always <laughs> an answer. All right. Headaches and migraines, common problems, <laughs> and a source of disability for a lot of Americans. Now, fortunately, the treatments for migraines are better, and there are even some newer medications out there that will actually prevent migraines. Absolutely. Our thanks to neurologist Dr. Beth Robertson from the Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much, Dr. Thank Robertson. You.
6: And that's our program for this week. For more
5: information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs
6: tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio.
5: You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
6: And I'm Tracy McRae.
5: Thanks for joining us.
0: Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.com.